From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. We've been doing it on Zoom for the last year plus. It allows everybody to be together no matter where we are. We are, in fact, almost all together and will be shortly. Audie Weiner's here. Eric Bradlow is here. This is Cade Massey. Shane Jensen will be sliding in here momentarily. We are going to do a little COVID conversation in the first quarter. A couple of open topics. We're going to close with our interview segment at Q4. Have sports writer Pat Forty on tap for today, covering a few sports that he's deep in. Fun conversation at the end of the show. Gentlemen, good to see you. As always, we're recording on Tuesday afternoon. This thing will go up on Wednesday. We haven't been together as a big group in a couple weeks. And despite what many of us would hope and many forecast, COVID remains top of the news, top of mind for many people and relevant in many different ways. I'm curious, what has caught your eye in the world of the pandemic lately? Eric, what's on your mind? Well, I'll, I'll tell you, um, I think the numbers that I saw the most, that probably caught my eye the most, which is probably no surprise to anybody, is the statement of Dr. Fauci and the statement of every state that's reporting that of the COVID deaths in the month of June, more than 99% of them were unvaccinated people. So I want to state that number again. Of the COVID deaths in the month of June, more than 99% of them were unvaccinated people. Now, of course, as a statistician, you could make two arguments. One argument is that look how many lives the vaccine saved, and for sure it did. However, the counter argument that's always made in these things to make it not causal is that there's a self-selection process here of who chose to get vaccinated. And maybe you could make up an argument the people that chose to get vaccinated or didn't choose to get vaccinated are more worried about side effects because they're in bad health to begin with. So that's one possibility. Another possibility is that, uh, again, uh, there's a self-selection process on exposure. So people that choose not to get vaccinated are people that are maybe more likely to be exposed in some way, or, and maybe they think the opposite. And so I'm not disputing the number, and I know the vaccine is extraordinarily effective, but I think it's interesting when you hear a marginal number listed like that from a statistical perspective, how you can bring even, I'll call it, at-the-margin concerns about interpreting it without thinking a little more carefully. I think yeah. it's a great it's a great procedural point. In this case, we don't have it's a more lot procedural of than anything yeah. else. Kate, I we don't have a lot of reason to think selection effects are there, but it's always good to remind ourselves to ask the selection question. Adi. Yeah, yeah. what's really important is to recognize that the vaccines were tested in an experimental uh, formula. Blinded, double-blind controlled experiments. So those original data is absolutely unreplicable. And now the way they did it originally, 20,000 got the vaccine, 20,000 did. They tracked them. Nobody knew who, they got what, and they see who, see who got it. That is the only way to get rid of selection bias, randomized controlled experiments. What you're reading now is not randomized. It's not controlled. It's nothing. Yeah. And these and these other other mechanisms could creep in. Nevertheless, of course, yeah. it's a pretty good number. I yeah, mean, 99 yeah, is... Um, but I just want to, I do want to point this out. Real, real quickly, let me just make the number, um, and I'm going to kind of wave my hands at it, but we are in the U.S. cruising in the 100s 
lately with deaths. All right. So in June, that number was more like in the 300s, but at 300s, it's, it's like 9,000 deaths. And so is it safe to say, Eric, that had all of those people been vaccinated, which was a magic thing, it couldn't have happened. But if we could have magically vaccinated those people ahead of time, we might have had 9,000 fewer deaths is, is one implication. If you, if, you, if, you, if you didn't worry about your concerns, if you took the implication directly, that's, that's how effective the vaccination has been. And we're still talking about 9,000 in our lowest month yet is still 9,000 deaths. I think that's a fair. I, I I I think that's absolutely a fair effect size estimate that mm-hmm. most of those lives could have been saved had those people been vaccinated. Yes, I think okay. it's fair to say that. I know it's glib. I know it's rough. I know it's not well, exactly you're, kosher. You're but saved way way more than that. Those are the people. Those are the people who who died that we could have saved. But there's tons of people who were saved. Because of the vaccine, you're not even counting those. There's that's a, right. That's, yeah, no, yeah, yeah. We're, we're just talking about the people that died who I mean, were unvaccinated. But I think the more interesting number is really going forward because I think the United States um, is sort of slower to get the Delta variant. It's now coming. Um, other countries have seen pretty pretty steady increases in the number of cases. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, when we talked about COVID. I made the, the somewhat bold forecast. I, I don't know if it's going to play out. I hope it doesn't that within a couple months' time, we're going to see cases go up and we're going to see a some kind of retraction in the way people have been behaving in the United States, which is, for the most part, completely normal. Um, there is some deaths, some numbers which are, which are contradictory. Um, so Israel reported 64% protective against the Delta, mm-hmm. but that's not an experiment. That is so far from an experiment that, that you cannot... Just okay, talk that number as if it we, means anything. We got we to talk about it. If I had to pick a single number that caught my eye in the last week, that was going to be the number. So what this is supposed to be the protection that vaccine offers against the Delta variant. And we, we're kind of spoiled on the, the, the original protection against the original variants, which is in the mid-90s. And then the, Israel comes along and says, well, with Delta, it's only 63, 64. Now, other countries have reported higher numbers. Yes. Britain, Britain reported something like 89, Scotland 79, Canada 88. You know, that's the kind of stuff we've seen. So Adi, walk us through that a little bit. Why the concerns? What are the criticisms of the Israeli number? Well, it's 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 not just the Israeli number versus the other numbers. It's the idea that none of this is a is a is a a randomized, controlled, unselection biased comparison. Right. So what they're doing is they're looking Essentially, they're looking at the base rates of vaccinations by age, effectively, and then they're looking at who's gotten sick, and and they're just kind of doing a relative rate calculation. And they're saying, you know, there's let's just make it simple. Let's say if half the population is vaccinated and half are not, then what you're expecting to see is equal numbers if the vaccine has no effect. And then as that those numbers become differential, they say they figure out what the protection number is that make the that make the two numbers um, uh, effectively the same. And they're getting 64%. But those groups are not the same. They're not even close to the same. And a lot has to do with, with um, where you get exposure. Because in Israel, the numbers are really small, right? They're, I mean, and, they're, and the vast numbers of people who are getting infected in Israel are children who haven't been vaccinated. And so and it's just, a, it's just not a way. To, it's, it's basically what I'm saying ultimately is the sensitivity on these estimates is really, really big. So it's kind of like 64 plus or minus 25%. I don't know. Maybe not. A, it's not biased. It's not equal. Um, it, it's, it's not a symmetric figure, but it probably has a confidence interval. It's, it goes from something like 50 to 90. 
And Adi, are you also saying that because the incidence is so much lower in Israel now than in these other countries, that confidence interval is going to be wider? Absolutely. In the studies, but seemingly it has to be compared to Great Britain, which is still pretty high volume. But also, if you're talking about communities, right? So it's, there's there's a school and a community that that had a, a couple hundred cases. Um, the rest of the country, nothing, right? So that that means you really only have one unit there, not not hundreds of units. And so your sample size can be actually quite misleading because of the correlation in the individual. Yeah, yeah, that makes so a lot Adi, of sense. Can you also talk about? Um, I know in a randomized double blind control trial, they know who the people are and they're tracking those people. That's Who's right. actually getting measured here? Can you just talk about that briefly? Well, yeah, so, so what they're doing actually is actually interesting what happened. First of all, vaccination rates immediately shut up. So, so as soon as the rates went up, all of a sudden, there's still a sizable population, particularly among young people who aren't getting vaccinated. They're, and in fact, their, their, their initial Pfizer um, delivery, they run out, they become, um, they expire at the end of July. So there's a push to get everybody vaccinated before the vaccines expire. So that's, that's the first thing. Who's getting it? First of all, people are bringing it from abroad. That seems to be where it's coming in from. And so that's, that already, already makes the independence assumption completely nonsense. People are coming in from outside and they're exposing it to a particular community. So if you go to a community where mostly everybody is vaccinated except for the kids, then of course everybody is going to, almost everybody who's, who gets to get it, it the, the number is going to be 64 because almost all the exposure isn't among vaccinated people. Mm-hmm. So that already sets the baseline on its edge, which if you don't have that number right, you can't get the, the actual effectiveness rate, right? Okay, Adi, so one of the games that we play periodically, and um, I've enjoyed your approach to this, especially around presidential elections, is, okay, Adi, give us a number. Let's do like a the kind of a seat of the pants number. Israel reported 63 or 4, again, Britain 89, Scotland 79, Canada 88. You had to say, what do you think the protection is against, I know this is ridiculous in some level, but I'm curious, what, is, what do you think the protection is? Protection against what, Kate? I just want to understand, Kate, do you mean against symptomatic or do you mean hospitalization? I just want to know what number you're asking him about. Right, so they are reporting both of those things. So even in the the Israeli study, the 64 is against symptomatic, and then it's something like 94 against hospitalization or severe illness. And so, and like 99 against death. Yeah, so so we're really just talking about symptomatic. But uh, I I guess the bottom, and this is a relevant question. This is not like just arcane stuff, because this is the question we now face. All four of us are vaccinated. Delta is growing. It's the dominant strain in the U.S. Now, there are pockets of the U.S. where vaccination rates are lower. One of us might live in one of these pockets. And so we have decisions to make because we've all gotten pretty kind of back to normal. What risk are we facing? And and what do you assess that risk to be? So I'm curious, Adi. And so I I would guess that the the protection against asymptotic uh, against symptomatic, nice, not asymptotic. Asymptotic. I've been doing that for for a year yeah, now. For a year now, there's um, no protection against asymptotic. Asymptotic, right? So symptomatic, I would guess it's between eighty and ninety. I, I'm I'm fully confident the Israel number is low. I don't think it's at ninety. That would be an upper end. So I, I'm going to guess somewhere around eighty. I would say against against hospitalizations, it's undoubtedly above you know ninety five percent. So if you just simply take the, and by the way, there are far better treatments available for COVID than there was a year and a half ago. We have, far, we, have way, we know much more about how to properly treat a bad case of COVID than we did a year and a half ago. I would actually argue, I'm going to be quite blunt about it. I think that it's a manageable disease if you're vaccinated 
combining the risk and the manageability, um, I, would, I, I would essentially do very, very little, except encourage people who, when they're not feeling well, to either stay home. I mean, really stay home, or if it's fairly quite mild, you should wear a mask. Okay, so but th- I I think that's all reasonable, but then there it is still life interrupting, right? So if you're if you're about to make a trip or you've got to teach uh, or you've got important meetings, I mean, this can even if you're not in the hospital, this can screw up your life. No, I don't mean. Just well, to- I, I, I'm going to advocate to do nothing. I think for someone of our age bracket, I don't think uh, been vaccinated. I would change zero about my lifestyle. That, oh, okay. that even if you lived in Alabama? And oh, so- that's a different story. <laughs> I don't live in Alabama. So uh, but- um, maybe that's a different different, different concern. And I'd have to monitor the numbers and the, and the rates. If I'm in Alabama and they're at, in the middle of an outbreak, uh, that's a completely different matter. Um, okay. Okay. And I, I think, I think, I mean, this, this is on point with our theme for the last year and a half, which is, <laughs> Dial these things up and down, be sensitive to risk, don't have too blunt a policy. And you're saying, I think the risk is low. I mean, the consequences are mild, but you're saying that from the comfort of a a community where the outbreak is actually quite low right now in Philadelphia. If you live in these places where you're just, you go to the grocery store, you're much more likely to be exposed to it than you might modify your behavior. Yes. And also, I mean, speaking of kind of a a particular public policy or, or I guess private policy, um, you know, under this model where basically what, what you're just describing is COVID basically becomes like the flu. Um, Penn, up yes, until this year right. at least, did not make uh, a vaccine, a flu vaccine, a mandatory requirement for coming to Canvas. But it did make a COVID vaccine a mandatory requirement. I'm not arguing that that shouldn't be the case. But a year from now, if COVID still exists, are the boosters going to be mandatory? Mm-hmm. And when I say this, I mean, again, like not in America, obviously the vaccine's not mandatory for the public, but it is going to essentially become mandatory if you have to, you know, in certain workplaces. And how mm-hmm. do you kind of feel about that, given the relative risk of it, say, for example, versus the flu and some other kind of historical viruses? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know. How do you feel about it, Shane? Do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing? <laughs> I mean, I, I, I kind of, I mean, I, 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 I'm very pro vaccine. I got mine as you, you know, at the yeah, but, earliest, okay. uh, that I was eligible for it, but I, 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 do kind are... of, I don't think it should be mandatory for people. And, you know, this kind of sub sort of mandatory thing we're doing where it's not technically mandatory for people, but to go anywhere or do anything, it essentially is. Why, I don't why, know how I feel about that. And why do you think it shouldn't be mandatory? If there's if there are breakthrough cases possible, so you bring you bring contagion into your place of work or your school, there are consequences for other people. As an institution, I have responsibility for everybody. Mm-hmm. And there's a proven to be safe vaccine available. Why why are you opposed to mandatory in this? I mean, I'll give you a religious out, I'll give you an extreme circumstances out, but so, for example, University of Chicago. Well, but, but no, I, I, I just more. I'm not. I'm not it just. It, it is historically inconsistent. Again, with no, compared I mean, to like I, the I flu. Don't care about historical. You know, can I, let me, can, there's, there's, well, but if COVID that. becomes like the flu. No, no. Hold on a second. The, the difference between the flu. First of all, the flu virus, the vaccine doesn't always work. It's it's because there's so many strains of flu, and you can get a, a flu vaccine that just is useless. And and it's hard to force someone to do something that doesn't really protect that much, although on a high level society best is it, it does. It's kind of good. But on the individual and on a local level, eh, 
And I'm going to extend that for to vaccines because the the, the spike protein, which is the backbone of the COVID uh, COVID virus, um, is is or the coronavirus. <laughs> Good, I got to get your terminology right. COVID is the disease. The virus is the coronavirus. SARS CoV two. Um, the the backbone is that spike protein, and that's what the all the vaccines have been aimed at. The boosters are going to be aiming at these 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 variations, right? And it's quite reasonable that you're going to get a booster that's just like, eh, you know, eh, we not even know if it's going to really work or not. And that's why there's a, there's a lot of thought that you're not going to get approval for these boosters um, because they may not be so potentially effective or they'll, they'll go into experiment rather than just be holed out nationally. And I think that so, yes, vaccine boosters, I think the data has to come in on whether or not they mm. they have some value. Well, boosters are a real interesting topic and they are obviously in the news now too. But real quickly before we go, I want to give Shane credit for the first thing you said, which I, I think is interesting and helpful. You said the way I described the situation facing people in the U.S., vaccinated people in the U.S. regarding the Delta is essentially like the flu. Yeah. And we know when flu season is high and you know maybe we haven't taken enough precautions historically. Maybe this pandemic has led us to realize how you can modify your life or your behavior just a little bit to provide a little more protection. I think that's a very useful way of thinking about Delta right now. And in fact, it even helps with the regional. So Adi is sitting up there in Philadelphia on the main line without any great big outbreaks. There's no flu right now. I'm down here in the South. There might be some flu around here. I might want to think about that. Eric's been trying to get in. No, no, no. I was just going to ask the following question. So Let's imagine that at least the premise right now, I think the last number I saw was over 80% of people 65 and above have been uh, vaccinated now, or it's near 80%, maybe even 85%. And um, when do we start, depending on what happens to the death rate? In other words, we, we all believe that we may see an increase. We, Adi, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. We may see an increase in the number of cases, but we may not see a subsequent increase in the number of deaths because of who's gotten it. When do we start, if there was an increase in death rate, when do we start to question what we think we know? Like, for example, we could start to question maybe the length of period for which double vaccination holds. We could question whether people that have already gotten COVID, because in theory, they're protected for some period of time. Maybe we start to question that premise. Like, when do we start to observe data that says it's inconsistent with either you're protected through vaccination or you're protected through age or you're protected through having COVID that we start to wonder which of maybe one of those assumptions is no longer true? Well, I don't know when we're going to get enough data for that. I think the, the right answer should be effect size, Eric, rather than uh, statistical significance. We have to decide whether it's big enough to actually start to matter in a, in a kind of appreciable way. I think that's one of the things that we've lost sight of during this whole uh, COVID, you know, 16 months or year and a half at this point. And now things are being pushed down. Um, what I'm afraid of is we're going to see statistically significant increases and we're going to get, oh, this is it, it's now. Uh, we thought it, it was protective at this rate, but actually turns out to be a little lower and we're going to change our behaviors and maybe not do it in such a way that makes sense based on the, the, uh, the risk and reward. So that's what kind of potentially concerns me. Um, if it stays small, but just gets, you know, twice a small number is still small. Mm-hmm. Speaking of which, we are seeing an uptick in the U.S. in number of cases. We were down a low, might have been like 8,000 new cases in a day in mid-June. Here we are mid-July and we're hitting, you know, high teens, 20s. 
So there's definitely a slope up in the last month and it is very geographically diverse. There are states where it's still coming down. There are states where it's spiking. Um, but as a country, we're on, we're on the way up with cases. Yep. Uh, what, what about the booster debates these days? So Pfizer comes out, they want to do a boot. They want to do a booster. Some folks think there's not evidence. Um, there's a lot of ethical debate about whether there should be boosters in the U S before many people in the world haven't received a single shot. Any thoughts on boosters? I just want someone to tell me that I'm just thinking more from also from a personal point of view, but from a societal point of view, what's the downside? I understand there's a cost, but let's imagine, let's imagine I told you that if you got a booster, it could, I'm making this up. I said, if I could tell you that it could do no harm, it might do a lot of good. And that's why you should get a booster. Then what's the downside of it? Like I'm still yet to hear none, none in the we way pay, you we, we pay we get to pay Pfizer and Moderna this massive amount of money every year for the rest <laughs> of our lives. Yeah, but uh, but but it, but on the other hand, Shane, in it, if I told you that it moved ninety five percent to ninety nine percent, you'd do it. You'd be thrilled about that. You would well, take a ninety nine to it, one it, odd. If if there, if there was a government oversighted clinical trial that said that as opposed to Pfizer saying that. Sure. The chain's bringing some healthy corporate skepticism. Pfizer, uh, Pfizer, Moderna, of course, incentivized to pump boosters at us. They get to charge us a subscription fee instead of a one-time fee. <laughs> so I, I get it. Yeah, My approach is a little, I agree with you. My approach is a little different to say, if we're not sure, why not err on the side of the booster? And, and I, I always say, in terms of your effect size that you quoted, if it takes basically the true, you know, the kind that the the positive rate from like you know four percent down to one percent, sign me up, man. Yeah, but that's here's worth the, the that's worth the money, in my opinion, certainly. But are you paying it yourself, or are you expecting the government to pick up the tab? That's the issue. I mean, I think one of the things that well, it's the same. It's us paying it regardless. No, well, in yes both no. those scenarios. Yes and no, but kinda. I mean. Uh, but I mean, the, the, let's say this turns out to be just an optional thing that you buy, right? That could potentially happen. Um, okay. And 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 then then you would individually have to decide whether you would want to go for it. There's the issue of experimentation and testing. And but I do want to question one of your premises, which is that um, when you go from zero protection to ninety five protection, protection, any side effects would have to be pretty damn big to overturn the benefit and the cost benefit. Agreed. Agreed. When you're going from 95 to 99, and that would be a good result, by the way, much more likely is 95 to 96. Oh, uh, I agree. Uh, I completely or, or, agree. You know, or 88 to 92 or whatever you want to do. You're now asking the question to take that small risk. And it's not, there are a certain fraction of the population whose immune system is overstimulated by the vaccine. And whether that causes you to get sick for two days or it causes you have an immune reaction to cause a, an infected or heart um, or potentially other diseases, while they're extremely rare on an individual basis, on a society basis, they're not that rare. They happen in, in thousands. Um, the question becomes, is the benefit worth the cost? And it's a totally different calculation when you go, as I said, from 88 to 92, then it went from zero to 92. Um, and I think that that, that, Pfizer and Moderna are going to be pressed much more hard on the cost benefit analysis when they when they have that tiny game to, to justify rather than that giant one. 
It's a yeah. super, it's a super interesting point. And, you know, with as much vaccine reluctance as we've seen, it's only going to exacerbate that, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, people intuit some of these calculations and that's one that's going to just feed the vaccine reluctance. All right, guys, good discussion. Much appreciated. That has been Q1. We still have three quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics coming to you here on SiriusXM via Zoom. Cade Massey hosting with all my colleagues and collaborators, longtime collaborators on Wharton Moneyball. Audie Weiner, Shane Jensen, Eric Bradlow. Rolling into the second quarter now, open mic segment. You guys can jump into this conversation. Send us questions. Send us observations. Send us suggestions, criticisms, whatever you got. We get all those and we enjoy them all even the criticisms at W Moneyball is our handle on Twitter. Probably the easiest way to catch us at W Moneyball on Twitter, but you can email us. we got a mailbag of sorts. Our email address is moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. We read them all and we get as many as possible on the air. We'd love to hear from you guys. All right, guys. Um, we have continued through what has felt like, a terrific sporting summer the last few weeks. And we may have hit the peak on Sunday. A lot of activity going on. Adi, you're raving about your, uh, you had a good Boston experience, good sports watching Boston experience recently. I have to say, I'm not a huge watcher of sports. I watch my baseball. I watch main events, big events, but, but I, I definitely hey man, feel. We so have you watching like college football now. I mean, we're yeah, really- so, so I'm just going to point out that, the Sunday and into Monday was one of the most sports watching I've ever done in my life with Wimbledon in the morning. Um, and then I went to a bar in Boston, actually Brighton with my son drinking IPA. And on three screens, you had the Red Sox losing to the Phillies and in a very exciting game. I enjoyed that. I had on my, I, on my phone, the Yankees crushing the Astros only to get crushed in the last inning in a humiliating loss. And then I had Italy and, and England on the big screen with everybody screaming and all the, and all the waiters and, uh, and the staff at, and, uh, and in Boston going, why do people care about soccer and looking around it? But the place was full of people who very much care about soccer. And then of course, into Monday on, on I was waiting in the airport and, uh, and uh, was watching the home run derby. It was quite a weekend. Well, we can add to that as well. There's other little bits going oh, yeah. on there, but um, that's those are some main events. Eric, you, you, I know, had your eye on about six different screens as well. Anything beyond that that really caught your eye? Nothing that, nothing beyond that. Although I watched all of those events. Um, before I jump in, I, there's so many events. I think we have to talk about tennis, and we have to talk about what happened at Wimbledon, and we have to talk about Djokovic. Now, you know, now we've got all the big three at 20 Grand Slams. Um, you know, not only that, we have to talk about Djokovic potentially winning the Grand mm-hmm. Slam of the year. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's, he's, he wins the U.S. Open. He's not only held all four, which, by the way, he held them all before. He had what they called the Joker Slam, like the Tiger Slam. They yeah. weren't all in the same year, but he's already done it. Federer never did it. Nadal never did it. He may be the first one since Rod Laver in 69 to actually, in the open era, to hold all four Grand Slams at once in the and, same calendar year. And is he competing in the Olympics? So could he, he it's win 50, 50, 50 oh, right, right now. He's now, dis- he's now unclear. Roger Federer just pulled out of the Olympics today because of his okay. knee. Um, you I know, I was just trying to decide, is there any statistical way we can compare these players? Because, you know, on the surface, by the way, 
historical metrics now, Djokovic has to be number one. And let me say why. Um, he has the same number of major titles, if you count those. The one level down, the Masters 1000, he's got more titles of those than Nadal or Federer. He's actually got a winning record against Nadal and a winning record against Federer. It's close. Let me just say, it's not like he dominates them. I think against Federer, he's like 27 and 23. Nadal, maybe 30 and 28. So it's very close. I actually have up in front of me, which is I always do, on tennisabstract.com, they have the peak ELO rating for every tennis player. We could describe ELO rating as it is. They have Djokovic as number one all time, Federer as number two, and Mm -hmm. Nadal as number three. Um, and you know, you could come up with an easy argument since Nadal's 30, uh, sorry, Djokovic is 34. He appears to be in great health right now. Um, he may end up with 30 grand slams or 27, mm. 28, 29. But even if we are where we are today, as someone that's a diehard Federer fan, as I think people know, have listened to me for seven years, it's really hard for me to make an argument now yeah. that Djokovic isn't the greatest of all time. Yeah. It's really hard. The only argument you can make the only argument you can make is that he's racked up his five, his last 10 grand slams in a period where Nadal and Federer were well past their prime. Mm-hmm. He didn't get a 25-year-old Roger Federer. He got a 35-year-old Roger Federer. He mm-hmm. didn't get a 25-year-old Rafa Nadal, although he's roughly the same age, but Rafa Nadal had so much wear and tear. The only argument you could make, really, is that he caught one of those lulls in tennis where, you know, it, I hate to say it, but anybody really, really good was going to rack up a lot of slams. But that's well, the only, the, and the ELO rating controls for that, but that's the only way argument you could give. ELO rating controls for it in terms of ratings, but could you, there must be someone who must yeah, have done this it, kind of thing, but expected number of slams given competition, given your ELO rating and competition, and then that would be a way to kind of level the playing field for who your, who your peers were. Yeah. Going beyond that with like ELO. So, I mean, I think the most compelling thing, if they really were kind of lined up career wise would be head to head record. Right. As far as if you really, I know, but over the entire career, like a played wanna... each other. And of course, as you sort of were talking about, they weren't lined up in that they, their primes don't match up. That's yeah. And so problem. I don't know if you can kind of do some kind of, I mean, you might be able to use some kind of ELO model to do to, to adjust for that, like some kind of age adjusted ELO model that I think would be, I mean, cause the total number of grand slams is certainly a function of both them and the competition they face in a kind of more general sense. I almost feel like that's almost harder to adjust for than just trying to do like, what would their head to head record be if their primes, basically if their age trajectories like, there ought, to be some way, there ought to be some way you can sim the competition and just right. ask how many above expected Grand Slams they got given their Absolutely, you can do that. You don't even need to sim it. You can just build a – you can use an – ELO converts to a probability. Yeah. You subtract the two ELO scores um, and essentially – You kind of need to sim knowing because you don't – I mean, you got to play out lots of different ways tournaments work out, like who you end up facing. The only, oh, right, right. The only well, thing, in terms of opportunity. Yeah. The only thing that I've thought about for Djokovic, and again, I want to look for every reason not to call him the greatest ever. It's hard for me to do at this point. The Times, only rap I know the trains left the station, and it's only going to get farther. You sound away like a Joe Montana or Peyton Manning fan out there. Well, right uh, whatever. So <laughs> uh, we'll talk. Well, Tom Brady won one for the Bucks, so he can be the greatest now ever. But with, jo- <laughs> with, 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 with Djokovic. The only thing I can come up with, besides uh, you know, as I mentioned, that this down period. I, 
and I'll say it on both sides. The two matches he won that convinced me he was the greatest ever, potentially, was three years ago when he beat uh, Federer in the finals of Wimbledon. Yeah. When Federer was, I understand, still past his prime, but Federer had two set, two match points serving. Yeah. He won that match. And the recent match against Nadal at the French, yeah, where yeah. he played at a level I've never seen before. But on the other side, if you want to see the greatest beatdown in the history of tennis, watch the two matches where Stan Wawrinka in the finals of the French and the U.S. Open beat down Djokovic. <laughs> when Stan and him are at the same age, and oh. watch Andy Murray beat down Djokovic at Wimbledon when he won mm-hmm. his first Wimbledon. So mm-hmm. the reason I, I bring up these, maybe it's anecdotal, was I think if you took the best Federer, the best Nadal ever was, and the best Djokovic ever was, I don't think Djokovic wins that. However, if you ask me who had the longest peak at an extraordinarily high level and therefore who's the best of all time, it's probably Djokovic. Well, um, it seems like that's going to be just, it's going to be a formality in future. It is going to be a formality because he's so, going to win so, at least soak five up the, more. Soak up the debate while you can, Eric, because it's going to be less interesting with each year, Adi. But that's, but is, that's there, is there, a, yeah. Eric, is there, a, are you trying to make a sort of a, a, an analogy in tennis to the baseball Hall of Fame idea where you have to have a long career and a peak? Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, I mean, imagine, yeah, so you guys know the reason I missed last week's show was I was actually at the Baseball Hall of Fame. As a matter of fact, I was at the Baseball Hall of Fame on the day that we were taping the show uh, last week. And actually, at one point, I was thinking of calling in from Cooperstown oh, and doing it sure. while I was walking around that. the plaques. You should have done it. I know, I know. Next time I go, uh, oh, actually, I'm going in September for the uh, induction ceremony for Derek Jeter because I'm a presidential member of the Baseball Hall of Fame. But, Adi, I was thinking about what you were talking <laughs> about. As I was just saying it, I was thinking you need a long career and you need to have been the best in your sport. And Djokovic has clearly been the best and he's had a very long career. All right. Well, we've got one more to go. It's always fun to see whether these guys can pull off grand slams and um, hold them at one time. And that'll be quite the event. And we've got, but we also forget what happened on Sunday. Also, we, we talked about the NBA final. This is also, I was watching sports, from 9 a.m., which is when Wimbledon started, Adi, maybe you left, but the <laughs> Suns and the Bucks also played game three on Sunday night. So that And that game didn't end until – maybe it was I, – I forget when I went to sleep. But So that's a fascinating series because I want to ask you guys a thought experiment around momentum, okay? So the Suns won the first two games at home. The Bucks blew them out in game three, Okay. The Suns are the fa- were the favorite in the series. They won more games during the regular season. If the Bucks win game four, so it's two to two, but the Bucks have won the last two. Who's your favorite in the series and by how much? Well, that's an easy one for me. You're going to say the Suns. Of course. <laughs> no, but they're special. Yeah, but odd, there's just one more piece of information you need. That's Giannis was not at his peak. When, yeah, is he injured? maybe not recovered in the beginning of the series and maybe he's strengthening as he comes along. So there's structural change here above and beyond or kind of underneath. Well, how about the other argument? And and I mean, like really what, even if you believe that they were equal talented teams, you're kind of arguing that the momentum would outweigh the kind of the, the the home field advantage that the Suns would have because they'd be home for two out of those three games. I I am possibly doing that, but I'm also making the, uh, bringing in the possibility that, when you play a team a long series, 
you make adjustments. And so maybe the Bucks have figured out how to beat the Suns. And you know what? You can't refute that premise that they have now figured out the style they have, if they win game four, that yeah, they so have figured out the style they have to play. And they go, they're going to do it in games five, six, and seven. Maybe they won't win them, but they okay, have figured so, it out. So that's, again, not a momentum argument. These are structural change arguments, and I think they're interesting. Um, but I think we tend to overreact to these kind of blowout losses in the NBA. We see them all the time in the NBA. They're not as diagnostic. I think my sense is they're not as diagnostic as they feel. I, and I think so, people are going to overreact to game three. And so just to get clear again, I'll, I'll add my question again. Adi's given his answer. So Adi, let's say I tell you that the Sun, the Milwaukee beats the Suns tomorrow night by another, by 20 points again. <laughs> what is the, is that going to change who you're going to favor? So now the Suns have won two close games and the Bucks have blown them out by 20 in two consecutive games. Well, it does change things because now they're two and two rather than two to one. And, no, no, I said if quite, they win. If right, they right. win, but it's a uh, big win. And it's a big win. I, I'm not sure, you know, big wins in, in the regular season are not that interesting. Big wins in the playoffs, I think, are potentially a bit more interesting um, maybe I've got it backwards. I, I take it but, in part because of the psychological yeah. aspect, but I think also big win. What what I think Eric's trying to argue is that repeated big uh, big wins in the playoffs may suggest that you know maybe increased evidence of that kind of structural change that yeah. they kind of figured they figured out how better to match yeah. up and play this opponent. Because the one thing that differs from regular season that you don't see this kind of momentum is that it's a different opponent every game. Yeah, yeah. there is a greater probability or greater opportunity for learning i think in a matchup kind of you know way in a series like this so that kind of supports eric's no question but that goes both ways i mean the suns are going to learn too that's one of the reasons you're not going to see a point blowout in game four so eric has really stacked the deck toward the bucks with the with a second 20 point blowout um the Oh gosh, I had something else there, but I've lost it. Um, all right, so it's s- s- good fun. Um, well, can we stay on basketball for just one more second, and and also the Olympics, where I assume you guys have both seen. Let me ask you a question, Adi. I, you don't follow Olympic basketball maybe as much as I have. Let me ask you a question: Is a team beating another team by seventy points a big win? Seventy. <laughs> yes, big win. Okay, is a team beating another? Uh, let's let's call that game hypothetically in two thousand twelve. In two thousand sixteen, if a team beats another team, the same team by forty something points, is that a big win? Oh yes. Yeah. Would it be surprising then if that was the pattern? Then four years later, the other team beat the other team by eight or nine points. Would that surprise you? The team USA plays Team X wins by seventy. USA plays Team X again wins by forty. Four years later, the USA team loses. Does that surprise you at all? That would surprise me. Yeah, well, that was US versus Nigeria, and we also now lost to Australia. So the U.S. Olympic team is zero and two. These are exhibitions, thankfully. But right, they yes, are exhibitions, aren't they? Yeah. They, they, they were big favorites, like 35-point favorites. They lose these games. They are playing against NBA talent in a way they weren't in years past, but they still were favorites. And that one of the arguments is that these, these guys have just started playing together in the last 15 minutes. You know, they're just out of the season. They don't have a, we don't really have a national team that stands for any length of time. And sometimes they're playing other countries where they have more history together, more time together, more chemistry together. Those things do matter. And there is some hope that the team will gel more over time. But yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of shocking news. I mean, we were, 
we cut our teeth on the dream team and all that back in the day. And it's just not, it's not the same world as it used to be. Let me just wrap up my point on this. The next team we're playing is actually the real team that I thought we might lose to. And that's Argentina. And they've got a ton of NBA players. So mm. let me just say, by the way, we may go 0-3. I would never have guessed we would have lost to Nigeria or Australia. Wait for Argentina. Well, the beauty of this is that we're just a product. USA basketball is just – this tr- struggles now are just a product of its own success. It's The reason the world is so good now is because the game is so popular. And the game is so popular because the U.S. made it popular. And so this – this is just, These are just like qualifying things, right? No, these yeah. aren't even oh, – we're not qualified. even that. Can you, so you're uh, just talking about practice, Eric. Just talking about practice. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Thank you, Mr. Iverson. Can, so, I, can I ask you a question? Who's on the team that that that's uh, who's Kevin Durant? Kevin Durant. Oh, he's pretty good. And Lillard, <laughs> Lillard out of Portland. I mean, they've got some yeah, talent. Yeah, Lillard. Yeah, they, they've got some talent. But by the, I don't think these guys are taking it easy. But I do think I do think this is back to the back to the Suns and Bucks. You know the same that happens in tennis. Guys go to start getting behind in a set. And sometimes they kind of like take a break. They're like, I'm not going to exert myself in the second half of this set because I, I've got to save it for the rest of the match. I believe there's some of this that happens with NBA playoffs. Like these guys at some point know they're not going to win this game. And they're like, okay, we're going to check it. We're going to save it for game four. This is going to be a long, long match here. And so I think that's one of the reasons these blowouts may not be quite as diagnostic as, you, as they might seem. Look, we got to talk soccer, fellas. Look, am I the only one who enjoyed immensely the last month of these years? I got pulled into it with. Oh, it was wonderful. I, I, I enjoyed it a ton, too. And it couldn't have been a better ending as far as I'm concerned. As well. Oh, Shane. Oh, Come Shane. On, you're from the Commonwealth, man. You're a Canadian. You're supposed to be pulling for the Brits. What happened? Well, A, um, I, I mean, more, I, I mean, you know, long droughts, if they're not my team, I'm, I'm okay. I mean, the narrative is kind of more fun that England keeps You, you losing, like the long-suffering right? long consider thing? them the Boston Red Sox of the uh, of soccer of major tournaments. If, if, uh, if, I mean, and one could argue perhaps that the Red Sox, you know, pr- have gotten very irritated already. But they would only, the analogy would only maintain if the Red Sox, every time they went to the World Series or every time they got in contention was like, the World Series is coming home. We invented this. <laughs> the, the, the hubris of the English for like, oh, well, we de- invented this game. We, we just kind of deserve it. We don't lose at Wembley. I, I, I was fine with their, uh, that uh, it going the way it did. So let me say what, it, what interested me <laughs> about that game, of which I watched probably every minute of it, was for those people that didn't watch for our listeners, England went up one nothing two minutes into the game. So they scored, Shaw scored an amazing set and then not, not a set, uh, it was a kick across the field and then he kicked it in. And then England did what you never do in my view in soccer, which is what I hate about soccer, but um, they went into their defensive shell. I think they literally had one shot on goal the rest of the game. So they were going to milk that one nothing lead for as long as they could. Italy scored 67 minutes into the game. Nobody scored. It went to penalty kicks. And then the big question happened. And I, I was thinking this at the time when England's coach subbed in two players in minute 120. So the last minute, and those two players were both players that ended up taking penalty kicks. And so I was wondering, like, who would be better to take a penalty kick? Someone that's, I'll call it not only warmed up, but is at game speed, has already been kicking the ball for a lot during the game, or two players that are literally have just come off the bench. When I say just, I mean they literally came in in minute 120. Yeah. I remember thinking to myself, 
This coach has put himself in a non-win situation, which means if they don't succeed, he I'm not saying, by the way, they weren't really talented players, but he is going to absolutely get roasted for having these two players in their top five kickers, and they basically played less than one minute of the game. Yeah, I completely agree. I thought it was like, I, I mean, I understand. But I mean, because the counter argument, or, or at least the argument for bringing new players in, is A, they at least theoretically are supposed to be penalty kick specialists, and B, um, they won't be as tired. So, I mean, fatigue is a huge factor in yep. these kind of overtime games. But, I mean, even, even sort of with those two points made, I agree with you, to bring them in with like 30 seconds or whatever left, they weren't going to – I mean, you do, I think, would like any substitution to at least kind of be, you know – have the kind of adrenaline rush energy level of, of being in the game. And so I, I thought, I, I thought this kind of strategy, I don't know how, even how common it is to bring in players right before the penalty kicks. Um, and I mean, obviously backfired in outcome. I don't know if the process is also kind of a bad one as we're your sort of suggestion. So the, the English coach says that it was the same strategy they had used in previous major tournaments and it has worked out for them before, but it was, it was definitely striking. So one, a couple of details, they did have a few um, stoppage time minutes. So it was more that they got in at one twenty, but then they played like four extra minutes or something. So it wasn't much, but it wasn't. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. One of the players played on defense, even though he was not a defender played on defense. Oh, that's right. He had, that's right. But um, it does. I mean, there's so much psychological pressure on those shots anyway it only it has to just add it to know that not only am I kicking penalty kicks to win euros for my country for the first time in 60 years, but oh yeah, I was put in here just for this purpose. I mean, that's just stacking the deck even more in an already almost and, unbeatable situation. And, and, and in the case of the the last one, Sakai, he's 19 years old. So he wasn't one of the late subs, but they did they they put, I mean he was a pretty late sub. I mean I agree well, he, he was wasn't a, necessarily he, he was yeah, he, he was, was the last it was the third he was the last of these like uh, last of the real subs. I had a different I had a different question and, and maybe we've covered this in soccer analytics on the show before. So I think the person who at least, I don't want to call him the best player, the person who has scored the most goals, I think he's now tied for the most in the history of England in major tournaments is uh, Harry Kane. And maybe he's their best player, maybe not. Um, I was surprised that he kicked first. I was very surprised that he kicked first. And I don't know if that's because you want to, you know, get off to a lead, which they did, by the way. They were up to one after two kicks each. Um, I was just surprised that you would put your, what I thought, maybe I've got it wrong. I thought he was their best offensive player, and I was surprised that he kicked first. I don't know if there's a good strategy around it. Maybe, Shane, you know, but I was surprised. I mean, the way the design is, you're not guaranteed to even use all of your five. No, no, I would right? put him so in the top five. Let's be clear. Leaving your no. best. I mean, again, leaving your best. And again, I, I think he is probably their best player. He's not necessarily their best penalty kicker anyway. But even if he was their best penalty kicker, we agree that he should not be left till the end. Yeah. Right. right, exactly. Oh, so you may again, have already lost four to one by then, and so or three yeah. one. So why bother? Yeah. So I mean, I, I would guess the idea again, assuming he even is their best penalty kicker, and they were thinking it this way, is to try and just kind. Of, I mean, I think the psychological effect of building a lead or whatever, or or you know, being ahead is so dramatic that um, that's right. Well, that's I mean, that said, they did get ahead and then ended up losing. So what am I talking about? True. But you know. It's- True, but we had these stats on the show last week. The studies show that the, 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 the biggest differential, there are these huge pressure effects, and the biggest differential is whether you're kicking to win versus kicking to not lose. 
Right. And it's like a 16 point spread and the probability of make it. You're the highest they observe in any situation is if you're kicking to win the, the match, it's like 92% over a base rate of 85 or something. But if you're kicking to not lose, like you miss this and you lose, it drops into the high 60s. So you were saying that Saka was just put in a no-win situation. They were down three or he to was, two. It was certainly in the least probable situation of all of them. And, right. it, and it did kind of bear out because the Italian guy right before, I can't remember his name, missed actually. He in, missed. In kind of the, in the Correct. highest probability situation. That, that's right. That's right. I mean, obviously, these are just probabilities. But, but I yeah. add it here because it might influence the Kane strategy because yeah. I think that suggests what you want. That advantage goes to the team that's leading. And so you want that advantage if you can get it. It only those numbers are for the final kicks, but it suggests that it you you want to be ahead in this thing and not behind. And they but I mean they got ahead and they still didn't yeah. get it done. Oh, but goodness gracious! I mean, what a deal! I the, my I, we all had these same reactions. My my main reaction when he subbed those guys in was, can can players really be that differently good at this to merit such a move? Yeah, that was right. my overall reaction. Yeah. It's like really are there? Yeah, maybe there are. Maybe there are. And I, I mean, you could you could make an argument if it's like you know. Again, I guess, assuming you didn't actually have to play the regular game, like maybe there's a few defensive players that just aren't as good at like, you know, like scoring and stuff like that, that you could sub in for more offensive players. I mean, I, I just, but I agree. I would love to kind of know how much of the needle is really being moved by that. Yep. 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 So how do y'all feel about penalty kicks in general? It's people whinge about them and I've whinged about them because they're so chancy. You play this whole tournament, entire countries like live and die with how these things go. And then they get decided it seems seemingly about as often as not, they get decided by a couple guys kicking. I don't know. Yeah. I, I have no problem with it after 120 something minutes of play. And the thing is, everybody knows what the rules are. Everybody knows, you know, if if you're if you don't think if you don't want to risk it to penalty kicks, England could have had more than one shot in the last 118 minutes. You know, instead of playing whatever a four four two one. Bring people up more aggressively and don't leave it to penalty kicks because, you know, what? and by the way, I think England, as I remember hearing during the game, has a bad historical record in penalty kicks. Maybe they were two and six. Now they're two and seven yeah. or something like that. In major If you know that and you think that's a psychological process, then play yeah, more, more aggressively during the next 118 plus minutes of the game after you go up one to nothing. I will yeah, say, yeah, that I mean, there's, there's no better drama. I mean, I, I, I've thought for a I long agree. time that the, that baseball, you know, those big moments, the you know, playoffs, World Series, pitcher, batter, key pitch, that is as good as sport gets. This beats that. It's and this, better. That's, 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 I mean, that's, yeah. I mean, if, if you view it as essentially a really kind of exciting way to do a coin flip, um, they came well, up. They came up with basically the most exciting way to do a coin flip better. Well, well, and, and, and I mean, I'm fine with it because as long as you kind of separate in your mind that it's not, you know, that you're going to have an end kind of coin flippy kind of thing to decide. That's not going to be at all like the game actually is played. Well, Cade, okay, let me ask you. Know, throw in one more to compare, just quickly. Scott Norwood to kick the field goal to win the Super yeah, Bowl. Right, field goal kickers. Um, these big field goals, another one, but it's not quite. I like the mano mano aspect of um, the baseball pitcher and the, and the penalty kicker goalkeeper. One last thing, and before we have to run out of here, there, someone must do statistical analysis here, but it, it, the, the, how late they, wait, they hold their subs in general kind of seems funny to me. Like, why, why save they, – they, they sub one of their last guys for overtime or something. It's like, I don't know soccer enough to know, but someone has to run these numbers. But it's just surprising to me how late they save 
the subs. You'd have to make a specialization argument. The person's really good at penalty kicks. Yeah. No, no, but, I'm not talking about penalty kicks. And they're a good shooter, but not good enough to bring no, them in about, five, uh, ten minutes left in the game. And they, also, they, you do have to kind of hold something out for injury. Right. You have to hold well, at least one for injury because you don't get extra ones for that. Okay, but I'm talking about I mean, Saka came in in the 70th minute or so, and then their next Agreed. sub came in. No, this like the, one of their big yeah. scoring guys um, came in later than that. He might not come until overtime. And look, I, I don't know. I'm just asking the question. And I'm wondering if the analytics crowd approves of how late these guys put in yeah. their subs. All right, guys, that has been two quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have two quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics on SiriusXM coming to you via Zoom. Rolling into the third quarter, another open mic, open topics segment. Going to be a little bit of a short one here in advance of a longish conversation with Pat Forty covering a few fun sports in the fourth quarter. Guys, a um, few interesting events. Um, one past, one present on my mind. Right after we did the show last week, the Canadians dropped game five. The Lightning win their second Stanley Cup in a row. They're an analytics-happy organization. They're supposed to be one of the models in the NHL, right? So two in a row, especially in its, we think of it as a coin flip contest, the Stanley Cup playoff, and the Lightning get it done two in a row. I guess it's not just a coin flip contest. Any thoughts on the Stanley Cup, Shane? Well, I mean, I think I, I think it, it, it's not – totally a coin flip contest it's more coin flip than most sports because i think the teams are, just have greater uh, lesser disparity between them uh but i mean yeah i mean i think tampa bay is um you know obviously they've got one of the you know some great scores and their goaltender is looking you know kind of in his early career like he could be one of these sort of generational talent goaltenders so and Ooh. i mean certainly though to the extent that there's anything kind of consistently predictive playoff to playoff is a hot goaltender will take you a long way. And if somebody can be a consistently hot goaltender like Tampa Bay has, and like Montreal has, I mean, that's really the reason they were even in the finals. That is, that, that, that is kind of, I think more predictive to say playoffs next year than us. I mean, they also, I mean, I, I should mention also Tampa Bay did take advantage of this weird kind of, CBA kind of aspect of how, where, where Kucherov was not actually did not count against their salary cap because he only played in the playoffs. So uh, that's kind of a weird thing as well. Worth mentioning. But. Well, is that, do we, do we give them credit for gaming the system or is, or is it like, is it, well, you like the Patriots. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I, I mean, like, you know, I, I mean, you're, you're asking a Patriots fan. <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, um, kudos to the Habs. They came in fourth, number four out of their pod and made it all the way to, the Stanley Cup Finals is glad to see the Canadians represent, even though they didn't quite get, I mean, Canadians, the the, nation, the nationality represent Stanley Cup. All right. In front of us yet, gentlemen, we are at the fourth and final golf major. It happens earlier than it used to because the PGA happens earlier than it used to. And so they're rolling into, um, into um, I want to say Royal Ann's. I've got the name of the course wrong. Eric, what's the name of the course? It's, it's not St. Andrews? No, it's Royal St. George's. Royal St. George's. Royal St. George's. It's one, right one of the normal. It's in England, not Scotland, but it's one of the normal. Ah, that would make a difference. Yeah, Royal uh, St. George's, definitely. So uh, any thoughts on this one? Um, I've, li- I've listened to Rufus talk a little bit about this recently, so I can share a few of his thoughts. But I'm curious, do we think John Rahm, John Rahm who's been one of the great major performers on the tour in the last 
on the, on, on, in the game in the last couple of years. And he got it done at the U S open Brooks Kepka, ridiculous performance in majors over the last few years. Rory has been hot and Rory is of course, kind of from that part of the world being an Irishman, Xander Shoffley, Xander. A lot of people think he's about to break out. What do you think, Eric? What do you got? Well, I think the part that's surprising to me the most is that John Rahm appears to be twice as likely to win. This was this morning. I just downloaded the odds from Vegas inside. It was all, they all have all kinds of different odds. But John Rahm is twice as likely as the next highest golfer. That seems to me to be way, way, way too high. Like, in other words, uh, you know, I'd have to give you two to one that Rahm is going to beat Kepka or McElroy. Forget about winning the tournament. If I just said which of those golfers is going to win, you're going to give me two to one that Rahm is going to end up ahead of Kepka or McElroy? I don't know if that's true. Or Thomas? I don't know why that's true. That was the first thing that caught my just the disparity between one point. and two. It's a good point. Yeah. I mean, as noisy as golf is, we tend to think we want to be regressive. We want to bring those guys from the bottom up. And we want to bring the guys to the top down compared to what the public thinks. But that said, man, Rom feels like it. The guy has been so strong. And then he finally breaks through. The story would be, you know, he's been there for a long time waiting. And then he finally gets through. Now the, the burden's lifted. God, what's going to happen now? That's kind of the story. But the other know, point. Yeah. The other thing that caught my eye in the betting odds is just moving below the top seven or eight players. Basically, by the time you get to like the eighth ranked odds person, Louis Oosthuizen, Victor Hoblin. They're down to like 3%. So in some sense is that um, there's really not, you know, according to the betting odds, it's basically five or six guys with 5% or above, and then just a bunch of really small probabilities. That sounds right to me. That's golf. You know, I think that is golf. The things that most get, I think the top gets a little overbid. They get a little, those prices get a little hot. But generally, I think any given golfer ought to be really low. Ought to I just, I think that you just made the point that I was making. I think that the Vegas is, is earning money on this. They're thinking that people are taking yeah. Rom at bad odds because they want to bet him. And uh, they're like, instead of trying to, you know, even it out, they're like, well, okay, go for it. <laughs> We're giving you crap. And, uh, you, and people just keep taking it. Um, I also think there's probably a lot of bad prices out there in the, in the, in the tails. You know, Ustazen is a good one to keep an eye on. He's um, he plays great in majors. He was, you know, he was leading in the back nine at the U.S. Open. I think he's won a British before. I want to say he's he's he, he has a big game uh, golfer. I think it's it's setting up to be good fun. The U.S. Open was so much fun. That that leaderboard on Sunday was one of the most fun that I've had in a long time. And the British the British Open is always just kind of fun because it's a different course, it's a different geography, different time of day. Um, so this weekend we have that in front of us. Um, what else, fellas? On the what's going on on the golf front? Otani, am I going to watch the All Star game tonight? You mean the baseball front? Uh, but yes, yeah. um, actually, I watched the home run derby last night. I which, did too. Which I always have the most fun watching. First of all, the format is almost like a penalty shot. You know, head ahead, and then the and then it's a tournament style. It's got. It's a really great competitive environment with the two minutes and then there's the bonus. And then Otani and Soto, uh, they, they tied in the, in the first round and they had a playoff. They tied in that. And then they had a three swing kind of settle it. And Soto won it, which put Otani out in the first round. But listen, Soto is, is a remarkably talented player. He's not exactly a slouch. And then, of course, Pete Alonso won his second uh, home run derby, not in a row. But. Adi, what was interesting, I don't know if you noticed, after the first round, I think they seeded people by the number of home runs they have at the break. Yeah. The top four seeds were all out. 
which was just kind of interesting. In other words, the people that made it to the second round were the five, six, seven, and eight seed who beat the one, two, three, and four. Yeah. All I, you know, the only reason I, I bring that up is it made me realize I don't think there's that much information in whether someone has – for the home run derby – Yes. If someone has 33 home runs at the break, like Otani, or 20 maybe, like Soto, they can both blast the ball. They can all hammer the ball. Here's an interesting point. The pitching matters. And that's the thing that's really sad because uh, I think Otani wasn't getting good pitches to hit from his pitcher. And and on the other side of it, um, what was Alonzo was getting unbelievable fat meatballs in the same spot in the sweet spot of the, every single one was in the upper half of the strike zone, right in the center. And he just kept, it was just like, boom. Was, but you know what also he, struck me about this? I'm sure you watch this too. People say, Oh, this format of the three swings against soda. It's not fair. You saw the same thing I did. Otani had tied Soto with 20 seconds left in the regulation, he had right. six or seven swings. He had zero home runs. Uh-huh. In the overtime one minute, he also tied Soto with, I think it was six. He had right. 10 seconds and three or four swings to hit one. He didn't. So right. actually, that's the one thing that struck me about the event was, I think Otani's, look, he's pitching. He's a starting pitcher. Starting pitcher. Yeah. And he's batting first in the game. It's It's remarkable that he's doing that remarkable by the way i didn't realize that babe ruth obviously they're going to make the comparisons to babe ruth who was a great pitcher i didn't realize does anyone want to guess what year babe ruth pitched his last game maybe you saw it last night adi i think well i think he i mean he was he was kind of done as a pitcher in 21 but i do believe no, he no, but 21 adi 1920 yeah wasn't that the year he had 60 home runs or 59 i uh, mean he was still pitching the yeah. year, the 1920, he either hit 59 or, Matt will tell That's us, right, 59 right. or 60 home runs. He's still pitching the year after he hit 59 or 60 right. home runs. Yeah. It's remarkable. Yeah. And I'm he may hit 60 this year. He's on pace for he 60. I, I, I'm going to bet against that, but but it's uh, it's not it's not, it's not not uh, a one in a hundred probability. I'd say it's Would you bet? Wait, wait, well, all right, I'll give you, let's go now, 50. Oh, I think 50 is a, is a solid possibility. 50-50 on 50. <laughs> Easy. Well, he's got 33. Just to have, let everyone know, he's on a pace to hit 60, exactly 60. But, but I, I don't think 60 is in the cards. And, and I would say that it's a, it's a long shot, not a 50-50 uh, possibility. But uh, one of the things I thought I mean, tossed around uh, on Twitter was the idea that baseball should be using the home run derby format to settle their extra inning games. <laughs> I'm in favor of it. <laughs> Uh, so, really so God, taking a lesson of like penalty shots or whatever, just yeah. kind of find a, a more exciting way of doing the coin flip. Do you it's like the man on second base? I don't. I don't like the man on second base. Um, although I do like to completely game. overhaul the format, totally. of it, but not yeah. minorly tweak it so that it <laughs> yeah, is because you know, I'll tell you why, because I love the home run dirt. It's just so much fun. <laughs> gotcha. And by the way, did you see? I, I'm sure you all saw this. The, I think the longest home run last night, which they also, by the way, I, I, Adi, I don't know if you were watching. We, you, I hope you were watching hey. since our show. You were watching the StatCast version. I, I was, I was, yeah. Yeah, so for every home run, they not only had the distance, but the launch angle, angle the velocity, yeah. et cetera. The StatCast version was tremendous. I think the longest home run was 520 feet that yes. we saw last night. There were night. several at 520, and the hardest hit ball, I think, was 117. 117 is what I heard as well. Which and the thing is, is in Colorado. I expected there to be uh, further pitch, uh, uh, longer distances. Five twenty is is about what they've ever seen anywhere, and those are not in Colorado. Colorado, the air is substantially thinner 
Um, it's really hard to hit a ball 520 feet. Hey guys, on the way out here, let's share a stat from Daniel Rappaport, one of our guests. He writes for Golf Digest, and we had him on the show just recently. But he he posted, he tweeted Jack Nicholas's record at the British Open between 1963 and 1980. So if you saw this, don't don't answer. But Jack Nicholas, British Open, 63 to 80. He wins three of them. How do you think he does in the other 15 years? In 15 years. How many times do you think he finishes outside that say top twenty? I can't answer because I saw it. You tweeted. You, you either tweeted it. Right, or you so I would it. guess more than half the time he's outside the top twenty. Yeah, that'd be fair. Yeah, I'll just go with less than half, just to make it easy. <laughs> not <laughs> once, not once. How many times outside the top ten in eighteen years outside the top ten? Outside the top ten, uh, I guess. Give the other one. I'll, I'll guess. So now, now that not once he was outside the top twenty, he was in the top twenty every. He was single never time. outside the top twenty. How many so I'll say he was outside, outside the, the top, top 10 a third of the time. Times. One time. One time in 18. I was going to say, once it was one time. How many times outside the top five? <laughs> five I'll go with a third of a time. Five times. It's got eventually, right? Twice in Twice. 18 yeah. years. How many times okay. outside the top four? Oh, my God. Why don't you just tell us the distribution of ones, twos, and threes at this point? <laughs> yeah. There are three times. Three times in 18 years. That's incredible. Outside the top four. It's just absolutely jaw-dropping. I didn't know. Yeah. I mean, we didn't live through it, so we didn't know. But if we were living through it, we'd be talking about it every year. And you'd, we'd be predicting, well, he can't do it this year. And then after six or seven, we'd be like, okay, I guess he's going to do it. But it does get back to the quick point that Nicholas, you know, had 18 major wins, but also had 19 seconds. And That's we right. always you, talk yeah. about the closing ability of Tiger compared to Jack. That's right. That's right. So maybe Rom is going to start setting that record for us. Brooks Kepka has been flirting with it. All right, guys, that's been three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. Come back and join us for the fourth quarter after this break. Wharton Moneyball. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball. On Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into our fourth quarter now. Got the whole crew here. This is our interview segment. Has become our interview segment over the last year. We're delighted to welcome to the show for the first time, Pat Forty. You might know Pat from his work in any number of sports. He's a senior writer at Sports Illustrated, been there since 2019. Part of that, ESPN, Yahoo Sports. Big on college football, big on horse racing, being a Louisville guy, big on swimming, which is something we're going to get into. You can follow him on Twitter at ByPat40, at ByPat40. Also, great podcast with Dan Wetzel, Pat, Pete Thamel's joined that team. So there's a Dan Wetzel, Pete Thamel, Pat40 podcast, Yahoo Sports college podcast pat welcome to the show delighted to have you hey good to be on with you guys happy summer to you thanks man appreciate that listen we uh we thought about you there's a big story this summer uh everyone's kind of paying attention and you of course have a personal connection to it we're talking about the director's cup upset this summer of course with stanford losing his 27 year reign and i can't quite remember what university it is that replaced them I, I thought maybe you could help out <laughs> I'm, I'm looking at your Texas Tech hat right now as yeah. I'm informing people. Yes, it's the University of Texas. There you go. University of Texas clipped Stanford after a 27-year run on the all-sport trophy, the Director's Cup. Pat wrote a piece on SI about that. Pat, you had an interesting angle on that. You said you thought it reflected more than anything else how different regions of the country dealt with COVID. Yeah. Um, you know, I just think that uh, that there was a, a – 
a, a real impact, certainly out West. Uh, and I do have some firsthand information about that with, uh, my daughter being a, an athlete at Stanford, um, just how locked down the athletics was out there, how really reluctant they were to engage in intercollegiate athletics. Um, you know, they, there was really nothing that happened on any of those campuses in the Pac-12, certainly in California in the fall semester. Mm-hmm. Uh, even the teams that did play did most of almost all of their competitions away from campus. The football team was gone for weeks. The men's basketball team was gone for weeks. The women's basketball team was gone for weeks and the other sports simply weren't happening. They weren't playing. They weren't competing. They weren't practicing. And so, uh, you know, I just think that they were way behind uh, mm-hmm. going into the second semester. And I think that in the States, certainly in the big 12 and specifically in Texas, I think that there was a little bit more full speed ahead and right. a little bit more of an indication that, you know, that they were going to play through as opposed to waiting and seeing it was, it was okay to play. Uh, and I think that did have a big, pretty big impact on the way most of the standings turned out. Mm-hmm. And obviously impact on lots of kids' lives. Um, one of them was your daughter. You, you've written an amazing piece on Sports Illustrated about your daughter qualifying for the Olympics and swimming. It's been fun to follow her career through you over the last few years. And that's the real reason we dialed you in this summer. We thought you'd have an interesting take. And especially because we know analytics and sports science plays kind of a surprisingly big kind of off the radar role on swimming. And, and you, because you see a lot of other sports, I thought it'd be, we thought it'd be interesting to hear you think about, talk about your daughter, her journey, and, and what you've seen in training and analytics and the growth there in swimming. You, you've got two other sons that swim, swam for major colleges. Your wife swam. We thought it'd be interesting to hear you talk about what you've seen in swimming over over your daughter's career. Sure, I mean it's uh, it's I mean it's a great sport. It's a fascinating sport. It's a really hard sport. Uh, you know the amount of training that goes in, uh, the hours, uh, and then you know for the the amount number of practice hours per actual competition, especially competitions <laughs> right. that matter, is Incredible. huge. Yeah, the proportion is is immense. Um, but yeah, so part of it is absolutely, you know, grinding numbers and looking uh, increasingly more, I think, within the, uh, you know, the, stro- the strokes, the techniques, the stroke rate, all these sort of things to break down the most efficient way to swim. And uh, video has obviously been a big component of that. It's always been a sport that's run on the clock. But mm-hmm. now they have used the clock in so many other ways. Uh, mm-hmm. I spent a long time in May talking to Russell Mark from USA Swimming. He's their, um, basically their head analytics guy, for lack of a better term. Okay. And he can break down uh, to an incredibly finite degree, you know, stroke cycle. How many seconds does it take you for, to, for both arms to go in a freestyle race? And mm-hmm. he can look at it like a Caleb Dressel, who's going to potentially win seven medals in Tokyo this summer where he's 1.18 strokes per second strokes per cycle or seconds per stru- per cycle on the, the way out in a hundred freestyle and then 1.17 coming back. And I mean, they, they can take it down to the nub now and it's not just mm-hmm. looking at uh, your splits per se, you know, 30 seconds going this way and 29 going that way. So it, it, it has come along to really help them kind of, understand fatigue, understand uh, recovery, uh, and understand efficiency of stroke? Well, that's, that, that's maybe one way to, to make it concrete. 
how do you think your daughter, what do you think your daughter learned from that kind of analysis? In what way was, was she, did she benefit in maybe a way that your wife didn't because they didn't have that back then? Um, did you see her use that or gain from that in any particular way? Sure. Uh, I mean, one thing, and I'm not sure it's as much based on, yeah, probably somewhat based on analytics, but also just based on naked eyes. Just swimming has become a much more underwater sport uh, okay. because you go faster underwater, streamlined, uh, doing dolphin kicks both off the start and off the walls on turns. Mm-hmm. It's faster than anything you're going to do on the surface. And so that has become a much bigger part of everything. And that's why world records have continued to drop as people have gotten better at what they do underwater and more efficient and used it uh, longer. Um, but then the other part of that also too, like if you want to look at specifically at my daughter's standpoint, her top event is the 400 meter individual medley. It's 100 meters of each stroke and her backstroke is her weak stroke. And she had gotten to a point, she was trying too hard and just spinning her arms. And so they check her stroke rate and she goes faster when she goes slower, basically. Mm-hmm. She, she is more efficient going slower and taking longer, stronger pulls than trying to accelerate her tempo. So mm-hmm. that sort of thing, absolutely. That, that I don't think people really had figured out even the slightest, even 10, 15 years ago. So let me ask you a question. I was a swimmer years and years ago, um, and it's fun for me to watch how the, how the sport has changed. You mentioned the, the underwater swimming. I thought that they'd kind of pulled back on that. There was a time, uh, maybe it was 25 years ago, um, there was a, a, the, the backstroker who basically swam entirely underwater, and they realized, wait a minute, this is not what swimming is. It's not yeah. swimming underwater. And they kind of put in limitations on how far you can, you can go in and the, you can actually swim underwater. Um, well, like, so, yeah. so that kind of equalized it. But I also noticed that there's, there's more of a tendency, even when you're above, technically above water, more of the body is submerged. Um, there was a time where you, 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 you were, you thought you had to keep your body above water and then you realized that just was terrible. Um, was that just basic physics or was there any, any, how did that come about that, that, that they realized that this was so much more efficient? Well, it probably physics. Yeah. And sheer, sheer friction of, you know, body on top of water, mm-hmm. uh, you know, is, is not going to go as well. And, and I just think also continued undulation, you know, I mean, is the, the underwaters that I was talking about is, is a porpoise like motion. And that's a, an efficient way to go through water. It's how fish go through water, right? And so I think they figured out human beings to that, to an extent, can do that too and get more using your core more uh, and so that you're able to, to get more um, force, I guess, from, with what you were doing. And so certainly you see in breaststroke, breaststroke is much more of an undulating stroke than it used to be. Uh, freestyle, there's a bit more gallop involved now than there, than there used to be, certainly on the men's side. Uh, and then to your, to your original point, yeah, there was David Burkoff would swim the entire entirety of like a hundred backstroke underwater. He'd pop up to, to turn and then come back and they applaud <laughs> that. So it's 15 meter, 15 meter max that you can go underwater without disqualifying, but people are getting closer to being able to do all 15 meters, like in every turn where it used to be, that was really hard to do. Wow. So why was it so hard to do? Because of, so because of oxygen. And so all of a sudden where you have more oxygen, I mean, what did that, come on. No, they're, they're, people have just gotten better at it. Um, uh-huh. You know, so, I mean, they're just more efficient going underwater now. Uh, you know, I think before, I mean, their backstrokers have always been the ones that could do it best, but, but otherwise it was, it was more of a labor. And now like you watch Caleb Dressel this summer, he's in every event that he swims, he will be first after the first 15 meters there because he is so good underwater and it is core strength and it is flexibility with him. He will undulate more than anybody else. And it'll, he'll look like he's moving slower, 
but he'll actually be going faster than everybody. So, Pat, I have a thousand questions, but I, let me start with one. I have two, though, but I'll start with one now, and I know Shane wants to jump in. Um, how much day-to-day variation is there? So let's take your daughter or Caleb Dressel's best time. If they have their best day, are they 2% better, 5% better? If they have their worst day, are they 5% worse? How much variation is there from, let's say, your worst time to your best time? Because one of the things we like to study in analytics is just uncertainty and variation. So how much is there in swimming that you've noticed? And can a swimmer train to lower that variation? Eric, can I suggest a different unit of measurement? Because percentage is not intuitive to me anyway. What about just how far you'd move up and down a, a, a competition of 12 or 20 swimmers or whatever? Yeah, e- either one. Whichever way you, is more natural that you guys think about good times, bad times. How, how do you think about it? Okay. I'll try to answer that. Uh, I mean, you know, I don't have like a statistical number for you. I just, I know this. And here's the, the one of the real devilish parts of the sport is mostly you are spending 10 months out of the year tearing yourself down and just training really hard. And so you are in a constant state of fatigue. And most of your competitions, then you are going to be in a constant state of fatigue. And you are pointing to one or two competitions a year where you're going to be fully rested, where you're going to shave, and where you're going to put on a competition suit. And then all of a sudden, you're going to feel like a million dollars and you're going to swim way faster. And so there's basically a a an acceptance, a tolerance that I'm going to stink compared to my best times a lot of the time. You know, I'm not going to be close to my best times. But then when it's go time, when it's Olympic trials and when it's Olympics, you obviously want to be able to swim your lifetime bests or close to it. So you can see. I'm trying to, you know, it's interesting. I like Caleb Dressel's a sprinter and he can still be three seconds off his best time in a hundred freestyle, which is pretty much if his best time is a 47 seconds. And, and then, you know, so then you're three seconds off of that. Kate Ledecky is a 400 meter swimmer. She can be four or five seconds off, mm. uh, but it's not as, it's not as big a dramatic thing. And she's right. one of those people. She can swim through fatigue ridiculously well. Like there, you never know when she's going to pop a world record. Um, so can I ask about fatigue? Uh, sure. All this, the fatigue comes from the massive amount of training. I mean, it, and I know you just hinted at it. It's absurd. Um, so they're, they're, the swimmers will train in the morning for hours and in the afternoon for hours. And then they have dry training. And it's, it's crazy. Is there any science that says you should do it this much? Or is it just tradition? <laughs> I mean, where does, the, where does the amounts come from? I just thought it and, – and we've learned, by the way, from other sports, um, by, almost by accident, that sometimes less is more. Well, no, it's a really good question. And I, I can't fully fall back on a it's always been that way, so that's why it's still that way thing. Uh, I think there is more science behind it. But if you look at the people who are, have been the most successful – they train like monsters. And, they, you know, Michael Phelps trained like a monster. I mean, there were times in his career when he was reluctant, but when he was in that pool, huge yardage. Katie Ledecky, incredible yardage. Uh, Caleb Dressel is a sprinter, but he went to the University of Florida, which was renowned for big yardage under Greg Troy, his coach there. The feeling has always been you must have that base. You've got to have that training base. Now, there's some people who say you don't have to do it that way. There's this USRPT uh, race pace training 
uh, school of thought, which says Mm -hmm. that's all basically a sham and you can practice less, practice shorter uh, and still be as good. But it's going to be also that's you're going to have a narrower number of events that you can be good at. Uh, in terms of distance, you try to go more than 100. And generally speaking, those people don't really hold up too well. So uh, there are definitely different schools of thought on it. Interestingly enough, guys, I had a story today, the day we're taping this, I'm not sure when exactly it's going to air, uh, with Simone Manuel, the Olympics uh, gold medalist uh, sprinter, who mm-hmm. missed three weeks after being diagnosed with overtraining syndrome because she had been too broken down and couldn't get herself back uh, she was she was so chronically fatigued she thought that she was going to be done wow. uh, she willed her way onto the team but only in the 50 freestyle and uh, you know wow. i think her doctor in talking to her doctor her doctor seemed to hint pretty heavily like the swimmers are crazy you all need to rest more. <laughs> <laughs> uh, kind of following up on your previous comment about it sort of you know part of the reason for things is it's always been done this way some of these kind of in- innovations either through analytics or through better training or whatever well, how, how, why are some of, why, why does the sport ban them or why does the sport disallow them? Is it really, is it, is it mostly just cause it actually kind of affects negatively the viewer experience? Like, you know, the, you know, if, if, if the swimmers are underwater the entire length of the pool, maybe that doesn't make for a very nice viewer experience. I kind of bring this up in the context that baseball is obviously kind of undergoing this problem right now where innovation and development have changed the game to maybe make a less kind of exciting viewable product and whether that itself is sort of enough to kind of justify, you know, kind of somewhat capricious or arbitrarily sort of like banning essentially uh, improvement. Yeah, no, I mean, that's an interesting premise. I, I think it is less like a viewer thing because nobody watches (laughs) swimming except for once every four years, right. (laughs) Or in this case, five years, but I think it was a feeling like, under being underwater the whole time is not necessarily swimming, you know, that there is like the actual stroke and the techniques involved in the stroke should matter. And so there, the majority of a race should be swimming that stroke uh, mm-hmm. as opposed to being underwater uh, most of the time. That, that That's what I have tended to hear uh, for the most part, but it is interesting, you know, like when, when the Olympics are on here in Tokyo, now they, the fans aren't going to be there, which is too bad, but, but, the fans get excited by the underwater stuff when it's like, okay, they turned, where'd he go? Where do Oh, there he is. Wow. He's way up there. 10 meters, 15 meters. That was really cool. So you know, I think there's a little bit of give and take there with that. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about the Olympics. How, how is the team supposed to do in Tokyo? How does the team fa- feel? Who's the big competition? How's it stacking up? Um, yeah. So just from a swimming standpoint, the, the Americans will be very good again. They, the, the men, not as good. Michael Phelps, obviously, is no longer with us as a competitive swimmer, and that, that absence will be felt. Um, if you look at the rest of the world, the rest of the world is, is getting better. Um, America basically had its way uh, in 2012 in London, in 2016 in Rio. I think it's going to be less so hmm. here. I think the women will be more successful. We have a phenomenal women's team with, you know, Ledecky, who's, she's not going to win everything. Now we're used to her winning everything. She will not. There's incredible competition from Australia on the female side and some on the men's side too. Um, but we've got Lily King, we've got Simone Manuel. We, we, we have plenty of really good swimmers uh, on the women's side. So I would anticipate 
a large medal hall. Certainly the Americans will win the most medals in swimming, but it's not, I don't think, going to be the kind of landslide that we've seen in the last two Olympics. Mm-hmm. Pat, what's the, is there such thing as home pool advantage or are there much differences as people travel and swim in different pools, different countries? You know, not, not, not so much in the pool, but the travel makes a difference. Um, and especially, I think more so in a sport like this than you see in football, basketball, baseball, because I just think they're, they're used to traveling more and, and like swimmers are so meticulous about routine. Mm. And when routine starts to go haywire that you, right. you can get a little bit uptight, a little bit crazy. Uh, Ledecky, for instance, has not really ever been at her best swimming in Asia and we're the Olympics there in Japan. Yeah, so right. we'll see how she handles that time difference, but also um, food diet. I mean, there's just a lot of it goes into it. And this Olympics is going to be so different for all the athletes, just because the lockdown is incredible. I mean, mm-hmm. they can't do anything. Mm. And so who's going to thrive in that situation? Who's not, you know, in the U S a lot of athletes were locked down for much of the winter, but in the spring and through Olympic trials, Hey, there's 8,000 fans in the stands. It's loud. It's boisterous. You can walk out of the arena and go where you want to go. That's not going to be the case in Tokyo. They're, everybody's going to be very uh, limited in what they can do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We're talking to Pat Forty. Pat is senior writer at Sports Illustrated. Before that, ESPN, Yahoo Sports. You can follow him on Twitter at ByPat40, at ByPat40. Also has a great podcast, Yahoo Sports College Podcast. Does that with Dan Wetzel and Pete Thamel. Pat, we want to talk a little college football, but before, before we do that, you're a Louisville guy, and Louisville's been in the news this summer. We One of our favorite shows every year is the Kentucky Derby show, because we get some guys from horse racing, and so we keep an eye on it. And you know, we've been disappointed, I guess, to see Baffert, one of the best-known trainers in the sport, um, banned his horse, uh, Victory Pulled. What, what's your sense of where horse racing is? How bad is this, um, these kinds of violations? I mean, Baffert says, you know, this and that, but it's hard to believe after so many violations. What is your perspective on that? Yeah, it's a huge blow to the sport. Uh, there's no doubt about it. Uh, you know, Bob Baffert is the most recognizable person in it. He has dominated the sport and – He's been really good for the sport, like as far as being the personality. He loves mm-hmm. to be the personality. He's great with the media. I have had a phenomenal relationship with him for a quarter century, and now I'm, I'm killing him, which I don't really enjoy, but I feel like that's justified for, for the very point that you make is enough's enough. Like mm-hmm. the dog can't keep eating the homework and say, <laughs> oh, okay, I understand. You know, at this point, right. I, I wrote it at some point. He is, the dog has eaten a semester's worth, worth of homework <laughs> Bob Baffert, you know? I, so it's bad for the industry. It's bad for the sport. The sport has never been able to get itself organized and unified in terms of these are the medication rules everywhere. So okay. they're, they're all over the board. There's a hodgepodge and, you know, some places will enforce this. Some places will not. And so you get suspended in California. Fine. You go race in Arkansas. You know, it, it's, it's a mess. It's always been a mess. Um, you know, there's a lot of people within horse racing who believe the current medication situation is just way too picayune and that it's finding these minute overages that are taking out good horses and good trainers. But mm-hmm. on the other hand, you look at England and it's like, hey, our horses run on hay, oats and water and we don't mm-hmm. need all the medication and the, wow. and the sport's still doing pretty well over there. So yeah. I think American racing got way too addicted to medication and it's been a tough time pulling out of it. 
Mm-hmm. So, Pat, I'm going to try to tie together swimming in a way to horse racing in a way. Um, if we go back to the early 1970s and swimming, of course, Mark Spitz was the, the great swimmer of my childhood and obviously one of the great Olympians of all time. But if you looked at Mark Spitz times today, you would, you know, his times would be pedestrian. As a matter of fact, I think I remember Mark Spitz in his 30s or 40s swam against Michael Phelps or something like that. You go back to 1973, Secretariat still has the record at all three tracks. How does that happen? Like, why has swimming, you, know, you could say one's a horse, one's a human, I get it. But why, it, why does Secretariat still have the record at all three tracks 48 years later? And like, if I go back to, again, uh, to Mark Spitz's records, he'd be like the 50th ranked swimmer in the world right now. Oh, no, 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 no. Let me just point out, he wouldn't qualify in the women's side. <laughs> All right. So, so, so any, any thoughts, Pat, on why this is true? Or just Secretariat was that one in a billion horse and Mark Spitz was a one in a, one in a trillion horse and Mark, Mark Spitz was a one in a billion swimmer? Yeah, I, you know, it's really interesting. Hey, Michael Phelps, the greatest swimmer of all time, has one world record left. All the rest of them have been broken. So mm-hmm. 400 IM is his last one. So that's how much swimming has changed. Why hasn't horse racing changed? I don't know. I mean, my thing with analytics, right? You could take a right? horse that was worse than Secretariat and train that horse to be better than Secretariat ran. No? Yeah, I, I just, uh, first of all, I, I, this is all me just kind of spitballing here because it's a really interesting premise. I do think Secretariat was one in a billion, trillion, whatever, you know? I mean, those times and to win by those margins in the way he won, I mean, you know, the Belmont is is the the masterpiece right that's the to me the greatest athletic performance in the history of athletics uh if if a horse can have it then yes that's it (laughs) uh but even in the preakness the move he makes after a bad start to just absolutely run like a tornado to first and then break the record there is like oh my gosh what was that you know i mean he is that horse was, was I think, just different than other horses. And there's been a lot of talk about the size of his heart and that sort of thing that may have, you know, enhanced his, his stamina or whatever. Uh, but the rest of the sport, I, you know, why, why is it? I, I don't have a good answer for you, but I do know breeding has become much more speed-oriented and speed doesn't hold up over the course of classic distances as well. And so you're not going to run a mile and a quarter, a mile and three sixteenths, a mile and a half, that fast you may run six furlongs seven furlongs eight furlongs faster than anybody's ever run it but the, it is such a speed-based sport now that i just don't think that at classic distances horses have the abilities to do what secretary did well we hope that horse racing finds a new baffert and a clean a clean a new clean baffert because it's fun when they have someone like that on top of the game listen we got to talk a little college football before you go away um sure. and the big story for better or worse in college football has been NIL. So name, image, and likeness players can be paid for those things now as of July one and um, been all the talk for is, you know, we talked about it ahead of time, but now we're really talking about it since July hit. I'm curious, your I'm curious how you would characterize the, no one knows what's going to happen. Right. So how would you characterize the range of beliefs or forecasts from those who are like, yeah, you know, it's kind of going on before, not a big deal to the others who are like, it's going to transform everything. And I'm, I'm especially interested in your take because I think, I mean, so, for example, I think of Wetzel as a pretty hard-bitten, realistic kind of guy. So I don't know what he has said, but I'm guessing it's pretty cynical. And 
then you got some people on the other side are like, ah, hey, what's the big deal? I, like I listened to Feldman and Mandel the other day and Feldman was basically trying to, he's like, Stu, I think you might be naive about this. I'm curious how you would characterize the range and then where you think, where you think it's going to go. I and mean, I, I'm I, focusing on college football. I know it has to do with all of yeah. athletics, but for the moment, let's talk about college football. Sure. You know, I think that the, the voices that you heard mostly from within the establishment of this will be the ruination of college athletics will prove to be wrong. Um, you know, and the, I just, I think that they, that was mostly people that were worried about their own fiefdom and protecting it and making sure their bread stays buttered and their turf stays secure. Uh, and I just, so I think that there was this kind of panic almost of like, Oh, this is just going to ruin everything. I, I don't think that's going to be the case. I think a lot of athletes are going to get some money. I'm not sure how many athletes are going to get a ton of money. Uh, I don't think the variation within a locker room is any big deal in the slightest. Maybe I'm wrong there because football and basketball players have been commoditized at a young age, but I equate it to non-revenue sports where some somebody's on a full scholarship, somebody's on a half scholarship, somebody's on books, and they right, don't right. care. The athletes right. do not care. They get along fine. Their parents may be keeping score about who's getting what aid, but That's I don't funny. think the athletes care. So I, I, I don't think that'll be a problem. Um, the interesting thing to me will be if this does siphon money away from boosters that normally pay to the athletic department, they're now going to pay directly to the players. Mm -hmm. But I will also mm -hmm. argue that those payments have been going on under the table for quite a while at a lot of places, not necessarily all of them, but a whole lot. And mm -hmm. so now you're bringing mm -hmm. more of it above board. Uh, players may get into this and find out, you know what? It's not worth the 10000 I'm getting to deal with all the headaches that go with this, with having a professional services provider, which means an agent, with uh, potentially losing Pell Grant money, with potentially having to file taxes, that sort of thing. They may say, ah, you know, you met, a lot of them may say, yeah, bring it on. But some of them may say, you know what? Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm fine without this headache. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I say I'm fine with it. I think it needed to happen. My whole vantage point changed like a decade ago when realignment happened. And when it was just like, we're just going to blow up the map and we're going to blow up rivalries mm -hmm. because we want to make more money. Cause there's mm -hmm. literally no other reason, you know, there's no other reason for West Virginia to have to go to Lubbock. There's no mm -hmm. other reason for Missouri and Kansas and Nebraska and Oklahoma not to be in the same conferences. Mm -hmm. So when that changed, I was like, you know what, if that's all it's about, then yes, pay the players. Mm -hmm. Pat, the, a wrinkle in there that rubs me wrong is this, it's all fine, except you can't pay to play. You can, it's not supposed to be a recruiting device. This is like laughable, right? I mean, it's just ridiculous that they would say that because it's, it's instantly a recruiting device. And of course it's going to be. So it's just kind of yeah. silly. No, that's, I mean, yes, you are, you are no doubt about that, that it's a, uh, I mean, th that's exactly what it's going to be. And I, you know, you can, you, you can try to set up rules around that, but we've already seen how efficient NCAA rules are and effective they are at being uh, mm -hmm. enforced anyway. So mm -hmm. I just add this to the pile. And again, I would say, yeah, the, you know, the, the, if in the university of Kentucky, a horse farm owner wants to, you know, pay you $50,000 to pose next to his star two-year-old Colt. Well, he was probably paying you already. You know, they've just, nobody knew. About <laughs> That's right. So, so Pat, I, let me just start with, before I ask my question, let me just start with the premise. I agree with the ruling that was made. So let's just make clear, but let's talk about it from an analytics slash competitive standpoint. I'll mm -hmm. come up with an argument and you debunk my argument. So an argument would be, 
How do you expect now the smaller school that has the people that would always stay four years to compete with the bigger schools where the guys would leave? The only way that Gonzaga can compete with Duke is Gonzaga has seniors. Duke has mostly freshmen. The freshmen leave. How do you do you think there's a possibility? We don't know. None of us know that the, the league leagues, what's college football, college basketball, et cetera, will become less competitive because now there's no incentive for the best players to leave for the pro sports as early. And then you're left with a Duke team. That's just better. Okay. No, that's, I mean, I, I welcome the premise. I will say Gonzaga had at least two, if not three, people go early. Including <laughs> yeah, maybe Gonzaga was a bad choice because um, they also had a bunch of guys that will were drafted and will be drafted in the top part of the draft. But you yeah. know what? I met Wisconsin. No, I think your favorite I, I, school. Yeah, no, I, I, your point is well taken. Um, my thinking is this, okay, is guess what? That places like Boise love Boise State football. And if you want to be – the third string quarterback at Alabama is a four star, or you want to be the starting quarterback who can get $50,000 worth of endorsement deals at Boise. Hey, why not at least consider that it's mm-hmm. not going to keep you from going to the pros going to Boise. They've got plenty of guys in the NFL. Mm-hmm. Uh, Fresno state has a nice football following. Uh, I mean, Cincinnati, while it's, it's a pro town, there is a good mm-hmm. following for Cincinnati football. Uh, you know, I think that you can find places that aren't necessarily, you know, I, I don't see this as being a something that helps the Blue Bloods either stockpile or retain talent as much as it maybe spreads it out a little bit. Wow. Nor, even, lo- nor, nor even big city, small city. Like I make it up. I'll make this up. I'll use your, yeah. there's more car dealerships in the big city. Therefore, yeah. you know, someone that puts, you know, Bradlow Ford on their jersey, there's more of them in New York City than there are in Boise. There are, but there are fewer college football fans in New York City than there are in Boise. And so, you know, at least that are tied to a school. And so I think that's where the college towns are the places where there is a college base of people that are not just avid about the school, but accustomed to giving money to the school. I think I think those places you're going to see players do well in those areas. And some of them will be a little more out of the way. I, I love this idea. I love this hypothesis because I do think the most interesting question is what's the, I mean, to those of us who are fans of the sport and don't mind players getting a little money, the, the most important question becomes what does it do to the competitive landscape? And sure. the sport has begun to suffer some from concentration of talent at the very, very top. And if this were to somehow offset that, it's super intriguing. And the idea that you might have a booster at Fresno who's like, by God, go out and get me a guy. I'll give you a big sponsorship. I love that. I mean, right, exactly. Why would he want to sit the bench in Tuscaloosa? He'd go out and start at Fresno and pick up a nice car dealership sponsorship. And now all of a sudden, you got a G5 team that's going to be more competitive. That's really interesting, Pat. I love that. Let's talk a little football because we are all going to start talking about teams um, in the next uh, month or so. It's time. Thank God it's time. And we have a regular season, seemingly, unless the Delta variant rears up and bites us. Pat, give us a story that we should start paying attention to for the 2021 football season. And it can't involve Alabama or Clemson unless you think they're not going to be any good. <laughs> no, unfortunately, they're going to be they're going to be good. Um, I think all right, the, like the, the, the gate crashers that I look at this year, the teams that, that we have not you know, seen over and over and over again that I think have a chance are Cincinnati and Iowa State. Uh, mm mm-hmm. Cincinnati, for once, has the schedule to do it. 
And they've got a returning four-year starting quarterback. Their defense is good. It's always going to be good with Luke Fickle. I think if they've got enough playmakers on offense, I, I really think they've got a chance. And like I said, the schedule, they're at Indiana, at Notre Dame. You get two chances there to wow. knock notch yeah. big wins because you're going to have to have those as a group of five school to get yeah. any chance. And, I, you know, if they run the table, look out. Um, so, and I was State- early one second, Pat. I wonder what that early line is on the Notre Dame Cincinnati game. That's fascinating. That'd be so much fun. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, what? that's interesting too. Just the fact that those games they're, they are back to back on the schedule, but there's a week in between. And so you're okay. Cincinnati, you're going to play a slobber knocker with an Indiana team. that's going to be good again. You know, right. that was not a fluke. I don't think last year, then right. you're going to get a week off and then you, you get uh, ramped back up and you play Notre Dame and South Bend. Hey, you know, take your chances. That's fun. You bet. Yeah. And then Iowa and then State, Iowa State. you know, I mean, boy, they've got as much coming back as, as just about any school. Um, I think they and, and Oklahoma are way ahead of everyone else in the big 12. Mm-hmm. They could mm-hmm. both be looking at one game schedules, so to speak, you know, now it's a balanced enough league that somebody, you know, could come up and bite either one of them. We've seen Kansas state beat Oklahoma two years in a row. Iowa state has had a habit of, of starting slow. They lost Louisiana last year. They lost a couple of years ago. Like they were started, I think, going to, um, so Pat, you got to give me some. You know, hope. it's not like it's just. You got to give me some hope down here in Austin. Long, long-suffering Longhorns have a lot of chips on Steve Sarkeesian. Come on, he doesn't have a chance against Oklahoma or Iowa State this year. I don't think this year. Oh. Um, I mean, I will say, look, Texas always plays well against Oklahoma. At least they did under Herman. You know, um, yeah. they they either won or they were really in the game. So I, I give them that. But unfortunately, they played the same against Kansas. All these games were tight. It was ridiculous. <laughs> By the way, our producer says the line right now, you, you picked a game of the year, Pat. The line, the Cincinnati-Notre Dame guy line is only minus two. How about that? that uh, I, I'm, that's my early nomination for game of the year. That's, that's great, great fun. Um, just Pat, one Eric, quick question, Pat. Is there any top five school, power five conference school, that if they – I assume if they ran the table – they have to be in the playoffs, right? In your view, is it possible? I'll make this up. Some Pac-12 or however many schools they have in the Pac-10, 12 now, if they ran the table, that they wouldn't take the second team in the SEC over this undefeated Pac-12. I, I would think you're right. The Pac-12 would be where it would happen, right? Okay, that's the, that's the conference where if you're 12-0, and 0, you could possibly still get snubbed. Um, I don't have schedules in front of me, but there, there's a couple teams I know that have really pretty weak non-cons in that, in that league. Most of them don't. Most of them will play a pretty good non-conference schedule mm-hmm. in the Pac-12 to mm-hmm. their credit. Mm-hmm. But they also, it's because they need fans in the stands. They can't just bring in, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Cal Davis and, and um, you know, Utah State every time and expect people to come. But that's the league where if the rest of the league like is just throwing up on itself, but some team flukes in at 12 and 0 playing a bad schedule that you could potentially be left out. But I, I agree with you. I think the premise is if you are 12 and 0 in any power five league, you are going to the playoff. Pat, last question. I think you like the playoff plan, this 12 team plan. Give us a quick, quick pitch on that. Why do you think that's good for the sport? Um, more inclusive. It's a national playoff, which I think the sport should be. It is a national sport. Let's have a national playoff. Let's get more teams in. Uh, I think 
a postseason that includes games on campus would be phenomenal. If you, mm-hmm. if you have four teams that get a buy and then eight teams that play each other and that round is on campus sites and you end up like last year it would have been, if you took last year's playoff rankings, nine seed Georgia at eight seed Cincinnati. Yes, please. Mm-hmm. I will take that. If you've mm-hmm. got teams from the South going to play in state college, Pennsylvania or Ann Arbor, Michigan or Madison, Wisconsin in mm-hmm. December, Bring me some of that. That would be really fun. Um, so I, I think that would be great. Um, I think there would be less reliance on the bowl system, which I hate. Uh, and so I just think there's a lot of reasons to like it. The thing I don't like and I wrote about is just if you're playing 16, 17 games, the players better be okay with that. Because especially yeah, if right. you get up to 17, which it could right. be if you emerge from the first round, that's a lot to ask for people who are still not being compensated like pros and st- still do not have a union. Right. All right, man. Well, listen, you've got us fired up a little bit about college football coming up. Appreciate your taking the time to be with us. Keep up the great work. We love following you. Hey, my pleasure. Good talking to you guys. You're all smarter than I am. So I learned a little bit today. (laughs) Thank you. All right. Pat Forty, senior writer at Sports Illustrated. You can follow him on Twitter at ByPat40, at ByPat40. You can also follow him, his podcast with Dan Wetzel and Pete Thamel, the Yahoo Sports College podcast. That has been another two hours of sports analytics here at Wharton Moneyball. We do it every week. Had the whole crew in here. Eric Bradlow, Shane Jensen, Adi Weiner. This is Cade Massey. Big thank you to Matty Dats. The boss man, Matty Dats, makes this thing go. Dion Simpkins also makes it go. Many thanks to him. Thanks to you guys for listening. Come back and join us next week. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. Enjoy your sports.